You cannot have innovation. You cannot have real expression without the space to mess up. Hey, Sky. Hey, Jenny. So I'm thinking back, have we ever had an academic on the show? I think once or twice, but it's definitely a big hole in our show and one that I've been wanting to fill for a while. So I'm so excited to have Sarah Archambault on the show today. Sarah has been an award-winning documentary producer and programmer for more than a decade, but the reason we're having her on is that she's leading a new initiative at Harvard's Shorstein Center about documentary in the public interest. And what does that mean, Jenny? What exactly is she doing? Good question. Sarah will explain more in the conversation, but basically they're researching the questions and challenges filmmakers and industry leaders are facing in the current climate of documentary filmmaking. So that's, you know, all the things that I'm sure by now our listeners are very familiar with, you know, funding, distribution, questions of ethics. And basically, it's a team of researchers who are documentary filmmakers themselves. And so she really brings a lot of perspectives to the conversation. And so apropos for right now, as we kind of look back on this year of various strikes, and as the industry continues to change, as streamers figure things out. So it's really exciting that you guys had such a wide scope in your conversation. Yeah, and very apropos for this moment in the podcast as well, because this episode is actually the last time that I will be hosting Rough Cut. So it feels appropriate to have a conversation that really kind of wraps things up in a bow, so to speak. But it's not the end of the story for Rough Cut. We are looking to pass the torch to another person who's passionate about documentary to be the new host of Rough Cut. Yeah, it's an amazing end of of this era. And I will just say on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for an amazing foundation that you've built. And our first episode was in January of 2019. And it's been five years, you know, to spend five years having amazing conversations with amazing people means a lot to this community. So on behalf of everyone, Jenny, thank you for all the time and talent that you've poured into this to make it so special and what it is. And folks, as Jenny said, you know, we are passing the torch. So if you want to throw your hat in the ring to be a host, we are looking for two. Please send all thoughts and things and recommendations to roughcut at videoconsortium.org. And I will also say, if you're listening and you're a VC member, you may know some of this stuff. And if you're not yet a VC member, this will be news. But, you know, the Video Consortium is a global grassroots community that is growing so much. And we have so many programs that are on the table and that we're running that are by and for and with filmmakers, everything from a really fantastic filmmaking fellowship that just ended in Africa that we're bringing to Latin America next year, tons of mentorship programs and workshops and the list goes on. And what we're going to be doing with this next iteration of Rough Cut as we hit pause and resume it in the spring of 2024 is integrate all of our programs deeper into Rough Cut and have Rough Cut be more deeply integrated into them. So with that, you know, Jenny, why don't we talk a little bit about what's next for you? These conversations have been such a joy for the last five years. And I think 
they've really inspired me to lean a little bit more into my own documentary career. So that's what I'll be doing. You know, I've already, I've worked on films in the past. I've worked in news, but I'd really like to lean a bit more into documentary as a director and as a producer. If anyone would like to collaborate, my personal email is in the show notes. Serious inquiries only, right? <laughs> um, just throwing it back to you who are listening, um, Jenny and I are so grateful for the way that you've shown up and that you've continued to listen to each episode. And we're really grateful because we can't do this without you. So you are part of the future of Rough Cut and we're really excited to build it with you. So keep your eyes peeled for new episodes coming in the spring. And in the meantime, definitely share your thoughts with us. We are here. Jenny's going to still be involved as we do this tour passing. And with that, this is Sarah Archambault, and you're listening to Rough Cut. Here we go. If you could just start off by explaining what this new initiative at Harvard is and what your role looks like there. Absolutely. So, you know, just to kind of like back up a little bit. So the new initiative is housed within the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, at the Harvard Kennedy School. So the Harvard Kennedy School is made up of a variety of different research centers that have different areas of focus. For the Shorenstein, the primary kind of location of their of their inquiry is an examination of our information ecosystem and how it intersects with our civic life. And traditionally, since the center started in the 80s, They've looked at that through the lens of legacy media, legacy journalism, really. But that has expanded over the years. And so that research expansion has included things like uh, information technologies, social media, AI, human behavioral science, like how do people take in information and make decisions about that information? But they hadn't yet engaged in an examination of documentary film as a form or as a field. So they began to realize we are in a very strange time of like simultaneous boom bust around documentary film, right? Where more and more people are engaging with documentary film as entertainment. And so therefore, more often than not, now my friends are saying to me things like, I love documentary film. Whereas when, you know, I was doing this work 20 years ago, they were like, tell me which films I should see. <laughs> So there's more of a public familiarity with documentary as an entertainment, if not necessarily as a news source, definitely as an entertainment. And so the short scene began to see how people were making decisions about the world based on what they were seeing in documentary film. And therefore, you know, it, it became a higher priority for them to begin that kind of research work. So I was brought on not that long ago. I started in... Um, February of 2023. So this is a very, very new initiative, kind of with the mission of defining exactly how the Shorenstein would be engaging with documentary film. And over the course of those nine months, I've been on what I would call like basically a fact-finding tour. I've been going to film festivals. I've been reaching out to filmmakers, industry leaders to ask questions about what are the major issues facing our sector and how can a research center help move the dial on the issues that we're facing. And can you talk about what some of those issues are that you guys are looking further into? Absolutely. We're going to be examining issues of policy, practice, technology, and infrastructure. 
as it relates to the documentary field. So for example, in terms of infrastructure, what's happening with our distribution crisis? Some are terming it a crisis, some are terming it a market correction. But what are we looking at right now and how does it affect what's getting made and getting seen? With practice, we're looking at ethical issues. We're looking at those tensions and harmonies between documentary film as a practice and journalism. You know, where where are those tensions? Where are ways that we want to push forward or innovate? For example, the work that's being done working with participants in documentary films, looking at issues of consent. So just looking at, like doing an examination into all those different kinds of questions. Again, we want to be led by questions and not by what we think the answers are. So we're much more interested in these questions that filmmakers are facing, that distributors are facing. We want to understand them and we want to help deepen understanding that can lead to new solutions. In terms of policy, we need to be looking at, you know, at one point this country had a fairness doctrine. Um, do we need a new fairness doctrine in the age of the streamers? We want to look at what's happening with regulation in the UK, in Canada, and Australia. There's some real interesting innovations happening there. What are the effects of that regulation? How does it change the experiences of filmmakers and viewers? What can be learned and um, how can that help us kind of change and grow? Those are big questions, and there's a there's a lot to follow up on there. I know that you are new in this position. You're still kind of in the middle of your research, but you brought up documentary and journalism and how those things kind of overlap. But if you could just talk a little bit about, in your research, what you're finding when it comes to similarities and differences between documentary and journalism. So I want to be clear from like the very get-go, I am not a scholar. I did not go to Harvard. I am a filmmaker and a producer. And I believe that one of my main jobs is to facilitate this research on the part of other experts. So you're talking about those questions around documentary film practice and journalism. Journalism has a set of standards and practices that uh, guide all of the work. Those standards and practices have been in place for a long time. And they are considered kind of like gold standard of what will lead to objective, truthful storytelling. So to the journalism side of the equation, for those who like really believe in that practice as, as best practice, um, documentary feels like Wild West, right? We don't have standards and practices firmly guiding the work. We are kind of bending to the needs of particular films, encounters, etc., and we are often challenging the efficacy of some of those standards and practices as they are applied to certain filming situations. There was a study done not long ago by the Center for Media and Social Impact out of American University that really looked at documentary and journalistic practice that showed that most documentary filmmakers do use the majority of the guidelines that journalistic standards and practices set forth. However, there are a few things that I think documentary does really well that I believe journalism feels a little more tension around. So for example, documentary brings you quite closely and emotionally into points of view. And objectivity is such you know, a, a kind of stronghold in journalism, where in documentary, objectivity is not necessarily the mission. So that perspective piece, I think, is quite key. I think that documentary 
uses certain kinds of artistic flair towards storytelling emotional or dramatic ends that would be very uncomfortable for journalism. So using things like reenactment music, the ways in which cross-cutting sometimes works, it is it is in many ways editorial on the part of the director to bring in those kinds of artistic inspiration to help move an audience. And big questions have come up in documentary films for like the use of voice manipulation, the use of altering faces, like in the wonderful film, Welcome to Chechnya, the way they used that technology is to kind of protect their characters. You know, I, I, anonymity is used in journalism a lot. Um, when it comes to that experience in documentary film, is a false face a lie or is a false face a form of anonymity and protection? At the heart of all of this is really talking about transparency and what your obligation, uh, your pact with your audience is. And I think that pact, particularly in this age of mis- and disinformation, uh, is incredibly important, deserves further study. And I think it's going to be part of an expanding conversation about how we make our films. Hmm. And you brought up distribution models as well. And I think you use the word crisis of distribution. I don't know if you're using that word. I'm sure other people are using that word. And it is. It's like this market correction that we're seeing right now. And I'm just wondering what you guys have found in terms of how this like tightening of the market is resulting in the kinds of films that are funded and, and made. I mean, it's a very big question, right, about how big tech, how the streamers have come into the space in in many ways have created like some bounty for certain kinds of documentary film. But what's happening in many ways is that the distribution streams are tightening, which means like art house theaters are closing. Film festivals are shutting down. Some are shutting down. The number of films those film festivals feature are shrinking. The sales happening, acquisitions happening out of film festivals, I mean, for the past couple of years, I mean, I want to say they've been non-existent. They've been limited at best. So there is, in terms of a crisis of distribution, it's not that there isn't documentary content that viewers are, are able to watch, right? That is happening but it is a strict and tight set of controls around what is getting made and what the opportunities for distribution might be. You know, it it used to be that you could premiere your film at a major film festival and you would have a chance for a sale, particularly out of like an A-list film festival. That just isn't the case anymore. And in fact, some of the streamers are saying that they do not want political content. They are really interested more in entertainment than they are with anything that might be deemed as public interest, public good, anything too newsy, too depressing. So I do worry about this idea of being entertained to death. Documentary film as a form has often taken taken on the reins of journalism in speaking truth to power, in elevating and shining a light on issues of social significance that we're not getting the kind of public attention required. And if we are now hearing from some of the main sources of distribution that that kind of filmmaking is no longer marketable or valuable, that the algorithm is not telling them that there is enough of a potential subscriber base interested in that content, therefore it is not worthy of making, that to me is a crisis. And I would say like for 
the Documentary Film Initiative, again, we don't want to be too prescriptive about this, but we do want to examine it. We want to ask the questions. We want to have a a healthy dialogue about how we can protect a space for this kind of filmmaking and find a way that it can thrive within an information ecosystem that I think desperately needs to address this kind of plethora of content and yet lack of kind of public good mission. Yeah, I mean, it's a really tricky thing to address because it's like these streamers have their profit goals and they know or they think they know what people want to watch. At a certain point, it's like, if that's the only thing being fed to viewers, of course, that's what they're going to watch. But if they don't have any other options. I mean, there's a few things there, right? One is people are tired and people are overwhelmed and people have more information inputs in their daily lives than they've ever had before. Like news consumption is way down. There's a crisis of local news. There are ways in which what's happening in the documentary field has kinship to what's happening for journalism and other forms. But I think what's interesting is that because our distribution model is different, this idea that viewers have a choice and are therefore choosing away from this kind of content when they are not sincerely offered it. I think because people are so tired, they're informationed to death, they look at their screen at the end of the night, they get a landing page full of choices, and um, they are consuming what is being fed to them. So there is, I think, that discovery, curation, and um, kind of mission over market need to be part of the conversation around what our responsibilities are as citizens and what the responsibility is of the media to a public good. Yeah. What I'm hearing anecdotally from people who are trying to sell documentaries is, you know, streamers want celebrity, they want true crime, but it's also like they want a story that already has a a narrative arc that is planned out. There seems to be like less space for discovery, less space for like verite filmmaking, where it's like, okay, we have this great character, we have a premise, let's see what happens streamers are not trying to take that risk anymore. They want to know how the story ends. But going back to your job and also kind of where you come from, you spent the last decade plus before you went into this position, you were working as a documentary producer. I assume that informs a lot of your job now, but can you talk a little bit about what you learned as a documentary producer and how that plays into your work every day now? I'm happy to I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, I think the other thing too is that as a documentary film producer, I only had a few years where I wasn't also doing another thing. So, simultaneously to being a documentary f- film producer, I was working as the um, program director of the Left Foundation, and Left Foundation is a small family foundation that funds New England-based documentary filmmaking, and mostly with a lean toward more artful cinematic work. So how does that inform where I am at Shorenstein? I will say that one of the great benefits of my work at the Left Foundation was that I was in conversation with working filmmakers every single day. And so I was getting a direct understanding what the challenges were for them. And I was getting a real sense simultaneously of what was happening and the conversations happening in the field at large. So uh, it was a, it was a great position to be in, to both kind of be a part of the conversations at the grassroots and the treetops and try to connect those dots. But 
what I was finding is that those kinds of jobs in artist services in foundations, you really aren't able to understand the real hustle of the work. And the first feature that I took on to produce, I essentially took it on as a professional development activity for myself because I wanted to be able to do my job as the program director at LEF better than I was. I wanted to understand the obstacles and the questions from a more direct perspective. Mm. And so the first film I produced was a film called Street Fighting Men. And it was a massive education for me as to the challenges, victories, and pitfalls of documentary filmmaking. But I would say that as somebody who went to film school years ago and who has always worked in programming, etc., I was always a bit nervous to take on the actual role of like a producer or director myself. Um, I think it was like, I'm, I'm, I feel better being in the supporting roles than taking that big leap, just being unsure whether or not I could do it. And then once I was able to get through the process of making that first film, uh, I knew that it was for me. I absolutely love producing. I love the challenge of it. I love how every single day is a new question. Um, there are many frustrations that come with being an independent producer, but the joy of thinking through the problems, the new kinds of problems that you have to solve every single day, everything else seemed a little dull in comparison. Totally. What did you learn that you feel like being in, let's say, uh, a gatekeeper role or a funder role, somebody who doesn't have like boots on the ground? What did you learn being a producer that you feel like many people in those roles don't understand? I mean, I think the major lessons that I've learned, well, first of all, I mean, the financial ones are quite clear. And I think that at the time I started, they were less clear to the gatekeepers, but now are much more clear, which is just the precarity of the work, that the process by which you make a successful feature documentary as an independent, uh, particularly as somebody, because I work with a lot of people who are making their first features, I really love that role of kind of midwife <laughs> to these new careers. That journey for those filmmakers is incredibly hard. Those, those stairs are steep to climb. I, I've been able to see that really firsthand. Folks are needing to take gigs. Folks are needing to kind of keep the roofs over their heads while they're trying to make this massive, significant artistic output. And, it's, and people are not getting paid what they should get paid if at all. Or they're paying to make the film. <laughs> or they're paying to make the film. Yeah. Exactly. They're losing money. They're you losing know? money. Yeah. I talked, to, I talked to a filmmaker just the other day who made his first feature and put 25000 on credit cards. I'm like, never again, sir. Never again. Don't do it. But I get it. Like That's the kind of passion that these filmmakers are bringing. They risk everything. And so what can we be risking for, the, for them? I would say that the other thing that I learned was that we need to make space for the creative process in a way that market-based deadline outcome economic models don't make space. You cannot have innovation. You cannot have real expression without the space to mess up. And when you make a mistake when you're filming, it can be a little bit of an expensive mistake. Or if you want to try something that you haven't tried before, there needs to be kind of some patience on the part of your partners, patience on the part of the team, your producer, et cetera, to experiment. 
because if we're not doing that kind of experiment and innovation, we might not get to the best kinds of storytelling outcomes. And we definitely grow stale as a field. So that need for space, creative space, some grace for that creative space was something that I learned really firsthand. What do you think are the biggest challenges that documentary filmmakers face today? I know some of this will probably be repetitive of what we've talked about, but, you know, the field has changed a lot over the last decade and even over the last few years. So, you know, in your opinion, what do you feel like are some of the biggest challenges? I mean, I think one big challenge is that we're constantly working project to project. You're always pitching a project, but there is so much potential in filmmakers to be creating new work. The seed funding and development for new work is such a hustle that you really have to have a polished pitch to even get to your next project. So you're constantly kind of moving from pitching a, new, a project, development, pitching a new project in a way that like, I wish there were more holistic models of producer support and director support that helped you be able to grow and seed new work without having to like take these big development pauses and hustle again. Now those bigger production houses have the infrastructure to do those things. But for the smaller independents who I work with most frequently, it's like a project to project hustle and building momentum and significant kind of professional growth is is harder. Like for producers, most producers I know are working on four or five, six projects and still are getting requests for filmmakers who need a producer. And it's so hard to turn these folks away. The other thing, again, from a producer perspective, a lot of these filmmakers don't have any money to pay you. So their expectation is that you come in and raise all the money and wait to get paid until everything can get, until there's enough momentum on the project mm -hmm. so that paying you starts to make sense. I mean, I don't know of any DPs who work for free for the same kind of scale. I don't know one editor who comes on without a full budget in place. So there's a lot of expectations, particularly on producers and directors, to be self-funding, particularly at early stages, but even taking pauses in pay along the way for the sake of the greater good of the momentum of the project. And I think that that's really untenable as a way forward. That's definitely true. Yeah. What motivated you to, to move into academia? And are you still uh, producing films on the side? It's a great question. Um, I would say that I wasn't necessarily looking to leave producing, but when this job posting came up, about a dozen people sent it to me saying that this has you written all over it. I think, you know, by nature, I am somebody who is a field builder. I'm very interested in addressing systemic issues. I am very interested in how the field operates and how it can operate better for the kinds of filmmakers who I support. And so, I mean, I knew that there needed to be a different way to find solutions and that just plugging forward to continue making the films in the way that I was making films was not the best long-term plan, not only for my career, <laughs> but for the kinds of films and filmmakers that I wanted to see thrive. And so when I saw this opportunity to join the team at Shorenstein, because I did see a vision for how a program like this could really help all of us. So I made the move, but one of my big questions and struggles was with the idea of whether or not I could continue producing because I did not imagine leaving producing 
100% would be the best route for me. I, I get I get a lot of joy from it, and it would be hard for me to leave that behind. Uh, and so that was part of my discussion with the leadership at Shorenstein was I'd like to be carrying one or two projects a year. And like what I'm seeing in these early years of the Shorenstein is like, I really just have bandwidth to fully commit to one. And I was hoping it was going to be more. Um, but we are in, uh, I joke with people all the time that at Shorenstein with this initiative, we are really building the plane and flying it at the same time. And so, you know, imagine kind of like the massive development you do on a, a new film project, but doing that kind of times times five at this research center. So I am continuing to produce my colleague, Enrique Pedraza Botero, an amazing filmmaker who is a special projects manager at the Shorenstein. He is also continuing with his filmmaking. The Shorenstein work is our primary focus. And then our filmmaking work is like a, an additive to that. But that's not unlike so many filmmakers that I know who are either taking gigs, working in universities, doing other things to make ends meet. Uh, so that their filmmaking can continue. What I feel lucky about, and I feel very, I feel very fortunate that I am at a place right now that will hopefully have a voice in how things can improve for all of us, and to make space for the kinds of questions and the kinds of engagement that we want to be having more broadly as a field. So that feels exciting to me. How can listeners engage with your work at Shorenstein? Is there any way that they can participate in the research that you guys are doing or where should they look for research that's that's published? Sure. So we have our first group of fellows right now. Their public facing work will be coming out in the coming year. We do have a website and there's a Shorenstein newsletter. We're working on having our own newsletter for the Documentary Film Initiative. That is to come in 2024. But if people want to go to the Shorenstein Center website and sign up for the newsletter for the Shorenstein at large, um, there's some incredible scholarship coming out of Shorenstein broadly. And um, what we're doing with the Documentary Film Initiative is all, is embedded in, within that newsletter. Additionally, please feel free to reach out. My uh, email address is on, uh, and Enrique's email address, we're both on the Shorenstein website. In terms of program for the coming year, you know, what we're doing at Shorenstein includes our fellowship program. So um, our next fellowship deadline is January 31st for people who are interested in submitting research proposals for new work. We're hoping to do more convenings. We did uh, some collaborative work with the IDA Points North Film Institute and the Doc Society for uh, convening at Camden International Film Festival. We do hope to be doing more convenings like that in the future, and we will be issuing a uh, convening report from what was learned that will be coming out in 2024 as well. There are opportunities for connecting, particularly films that address issues of policy. Uh, we're very interested in hearing more about how to put those in conversation with the future policymakers of the Kennedy School. Uh, but all of that is in the mix in 2024. We're excited to see what develops with the research, what comes out. These things are constantly in conversation on the podcast, so it'll be interesting to see them studied and published. And thank you so much for coming on Rough Cut. This was a really interesting conversation. Rough Cut's hosted and produced by Jenny Butler and Sky Dylan Robbins. Abby Kittengore, Amy DiGiacomo, and Kaylee Fox-Shannon are our booking producers. Audrey Horowitz is our editor, and our original music is by Zach Wright. 
And this podcast is part of the Video Consortium, a global nonprofit media org that connects the world's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists to tell bold stories that catalyze positive change. You can become a member and join our global community of nonfiction storytellers at videoconsortium.org. And if you like the show, you can follow us on Instagram at, at roughcutpodcast or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. These are nonprofit endeavors with a mission to democratize the industry playing field for all. So if you want to support VC and this podcast, we would love if you'd head to videoconsortium.org to donate. Thanks for listening and see you next time.